0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 8, we'll go through 13. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. To sum up, all of you be harmonious sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to this passage that you would again feed us, and that we would not go away from looking in this mirror and forgetting what we looked like, but we would go away remembering It would be those who hear and do your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So from verse 11 of chapter 2, the Apostle Peter has focused on his concern uh, about the behavior of Christians the behavior of Christians, particularly when those Christians are living under authority. He addresses living before the Gentiles, submitting to governing authorities. He talks about servants and masters. He talks about wives and husbands. And then now in our passage, he stops with those examples and summarizes, and the passage begins to sum up, or more literally, finally. He now directs the church generally, saying, all of you, Be harmonious, be sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. So why this summary here? Um, Because when authority and submission come into play, and they do come into play in all kinds of situations for every one of us, authority and submission, our temptation at just such a point is to engage in combat with the authorities above us. That's our natural disposition. And on the flip side, when we are in authority, right, we are tempted to lord it over those under our care. So to everybody, and in summary, the apostle tells rulers and citizens and employees and employers and husbands and wives and everybody to be sympathetic, harmonious, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. So let's take each of those descriptions one at a time. Harmonious. Harmonious means same thinking. Same thinking. If we were thinking musically, harmony fits perfectly with the melody, um, though the two entities are completely different from one another. So in respect to our relationship with others, we as Christians are called to be moving in concert with them, moving together with them. We are to be united on one goal, Right? One goal alone, which is the glory of God. We're all to work together in such a way that uh, united effort tends toward that one goal. It's the glory of God. Sympathetic. What does it mean to be sympathetic? There's some, some difference between sympathetic and empathetic. Right? Sympathetic means to endure or to grieve or to suffer together with somebody else. Right? It means to suffer with them. Um, and uh, empathy, on the other hand, is, is parasitic. It means to suffer in somebody else. Right? And so uh, Doug Wilson says, um, Sympathy is somebody drowning and you reach a hand out to them while retaining one foot on the shore. Empathy is somebody drowning and you dive into the lake with them and you drown with them. Okay? Sympathy and empathy. Although empathy gets the bigger play today. People want to empathize rather than sympathize. Uh, but, th- but here's the point. We can sympathize with somebody else without going down in their fiery crash. To empathize, you're going down in the crash with them. Or could. Empathy means... means um, I'm going to make your angst my own while sympathy means I'm going to recognize your grief and your suffering and your enduring and I'm going to grieve and suffer and endure with you and yet I'm going to remain firmly planted in the truth so that you can overcome this grief and this suffering and this endurance you have to keep up. There is no goal for empathy other than to be angsty together. Right? The goal of sympathy is for the strong to help the weak. There's a there's an end goal to sympathy. Um, We don't like sympathy today, do we? When someone shows us sympathy, we think they are judging us, right? And in a way, that they're lording over their strength over our weakness. So part of this command to show empathy to show sympathy. Sorry, the word here is sympathy. Um, Part of this command to show sympathy is to admit that there are times when we are weak and need the strength of our brothers and sisters to support us. It's to admit that we're weak. Many of us never want to make such an admission. We just don't want to admit when we are, are bewildered and confused and hurting. The Apostle Paul said, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not please ourselves. And our Lord Jesus is described this way in Scripture. He says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. He sympathizes with us. To sympathize then means to use one's strength to please, to assist, to come alongside of those who don't have strength. So it's... It's yes, it, it is to enter into the grief, but with a purpose, right? With a purpose and a goal of relieving that burden. To the Corinthians, and you've you got to remember, when you use the Corinthians as an example, you're using an example of a very proud church. Pride ran deeply through that church. And so, they were so proud, they didn't want to be sympathetic. And to them, the Apostle Paul wrote, For though I am free... From all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law. So that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak. That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Notice he does not say to the weak, I became weak, that we might be weak together. He says, I became weak to the weak so that I might win the weak. So he became, as it were, weak. So that he might win the weak. There was a purpose in his sympathy. And so the calling here is for us to open ourselves up to sympathy. So many people just want empathy. They want someone to wallow with them in their grief. They want somebody who is willing to go down in those flames with them. But we as Christians are not afraid of the hierarchy of strong and weak. Or we shouldn't be afraid of that hierarchy. The strong are not to despise the weak. And the weak are not to proudly shun the strength of the strong. Right? And so we have to, we're called here to be sympathetic. It's purposeful entering into the grief of another, coming alongside the grief of another. Brotherly. The Greek word here is philadelphos. And so it more properly means to love one's brother or to express to all the kind of love one has for one's own brother, would be a way that I would put it. Calvin says, love as brethren belongs peculiarly to the faithful. For where God is known as a father, their only brotherhood really exists. Right? So this is a, a solely Christian virtue. Brotherly love is the kind of love that leads to Friendship. Right? It's the kind of love that exists because two people have the most important thing, faith in Jesus Christ, in common. Lewis, C.S. Lewis in his Four Loves writes, The mark of friendship is not that help will be given when the pinch comes. Of course it will. But that having been given, it makes no difference at all. Right? What does he mean by that? He means that it doesn't change the relationship. Right, friendship accepts help and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't lead to indebtedness. It just is what you want to do. Brotherliness then is the kind of love for one another that recognize that good deeds don't need to be repaid because they just arise out of love. Um, this is the Edwards taking Bob Simkin into their home for the past three days. This is the, the Fultz taking in the brags for the last three days, right? It's wonderful to see that happening. And, and I don't expect, but I don't know, they're probably not going to send you a bill at the next week sometime. Um, but we'll see. Uh, brotherly love, this is the kind of love that does not keep a balance sheet. It is the, the family caring for family. That's what it is kind-hearted. Literally, the Greek could be translated good inward parts, good guts. Okay, this, this word speaks to the compassion or affection toward others. We are not merely to be brotherly toward others and, and and love them out of a sense of family or a sense of duty, but we are to have genuine compassion and affection toward others. Perhaps, Perhaps you feel your hardness of heart here more than elsewhere, all right? Perhaps you are waiting for someone to come into your life that you can just naturally and immediately love, someone who is so lovable that your heart just remains in a state of steady devotion and interested in affection. Well, that is probably called infatuation, Okay? kind-heartedness is the general ability to love those around us. It is the ability to come out of ourselves. It's the ability to be affectionate uh, toward others, whether they're different in personality or in, in age or experience or wealth or in any manner, really. And, and as I thought about this, perhaps this can be best to put this way. Being kind-hearted is more about liking people than it is about loving people. Right? about genuinely having affection for people and not just having a duty to love them. Right? Being kind-hearted means to want to be with people, to want to stick around for the fellowship meal, to want to invite others into your home. <laughs> Next, the Apostle Peter says that we, we are to be humble in spirit. Nothing produces more trouble in our lives than when we think too highly of ourselves. Right? Nothing produces more trouble. We've all lived through the destruction that has come by our own pride at points. Right? We've destroyed many of our relationships. We've destroyed relationships with employers. We've destroyed relationships with family members, with spouses, with children, with with people who drive slowly. Um, with bank tellers, whatever it may be, right? We've done this by thinking we are in some significant way superior to them. If we learn this, we did not learn it from Jesus Christ, right? He is infinitely humble. Think about the fact that he has taken on flesh and will now eternally exist in the flesh confined to space. He's the image of the invisible God, eternally God, infinite in power and willingly limited in physical space by a body that's just like yours and like mine, though resurrected. Um, That's incredible humility. And we can't even admit that somebody else makes better macaroni and cheese than us. (laughs) It's so pathetic. But that's, that's how we are. We recast... You know, and then, and then if, if, that's not, if that's not where we live, we live here. We recast our failures as triumphs. We reframe our past as going from one victory to the next victory, right? We lie about our past because we are unwilling to come to terms with the fact that many, many, even most people excel us in every way. And so what we do is we just glorify our past and lie about it. Right, because that's where our glory was, but our presence so so uh, so weak. When I taught music composition private lessons to to non majors as part of my work as as an assistant instructor at at um, Indiana U- University, sometimes students would suffer from what we'd call masterpiece syndrome right what what they had written was in their eyes so good that any suggestion made by me would be rebuffed no matter how min- minuscule right you you should start this crescendo maybe a bit earlier perhaps in the previous measure oh that's that's exactly how i intended it right it's it's better it's more dramatic if we wait um, you need to move the flute up an octave or it's not going to be heard, right? And, oh, oh no, that that would not be the right kind of tone. Well, tone that's not heard is n- no tone at all, right? Um, I remember doing the same thing in my own private lessons for, for many years. Some parts of what I had done I considered to be untouchable, right? But the more you studied, right, the more I studied, the more... Um, Others studied, and the better you get at composing and composition or at any skill, the more willing you are to take direction from others, which is the strange thing, right? Uh, The better we get, the more willing we are to view our work with humility. So those who boast the most in their abilities, their experience, their heritage, their music compositions are likely those who are trying to pull the wool over everybody else's eyes, right? Those who boast... About their sexual conquests, about their, their high school track record, right? About the way they made six figures for a few years. Those who boast often lie, right? And they lie because they can't stand the thought of being considered inferior than others. Do you struggle with this? I mean, who doesn't, right? Who doesn't? Who doesn't doesn't tell the stories that at some point give you some sort of glory? We all do that. The humble in spirit, though, like our Lord Jesus Christ, do not regard equality with others a thing to be grasped. They are content with the knowledge that they are a forgiven sinner. Content with the knowledge they are a forgiven sinner. Content that they do not need to base their worth on their performance. They do not have to fake their knowledge of something in order to enter into every conversation. Humility of spirit is very rare. It's very rare, isn't it? We as a people, as Americans, love to boast. We love trash talking. We love to boast. Our political leaders are incapable of anything else right? It's boast after boast after boast after boast. We tell the nations of the world, get this, that our bombs are better than theirs. I mean, whatever that means. Bombs blow things up. Their bombs blow things up and ours do too. I guess ours just get to the right spot. But think of that boast. What a ridiculous boast. How do we pursue being humble in spirit? there's only one way, and it's by imitating Jesus Christ, by being little in our own eyes, by wanting to be respected by God and, ple- and, and see God and, and know that God is pleased with us before we want respect from other people or please other people. right? It's precisely what the Apostle Paul- Peter said back in chapter 2. We've been through this. He said, For you have been called for this purpose, Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin. And live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the Shepherd and Guardian of your souls. So the way to be humble is to do in all circumstances what Jesus did. He kept entrusting, and, and what is that? It's, it's this. He kept entrusting himself to God, who judges righteously. He kept entrusting himself to God. He did not call on the legions of angels to destroy those who had rejected him. He trusted God, and he entrusted himself to God, knowing that to be pleasing to God was better than being respected by men. So he, as the apostle Peter goes on, was able to not return evil for evil or insult for insult. Now, this is very difficult, isn't it? When we are attacked or called out or someone just says something a little bit off-center about us, we immediately begin thinking of what we can say back to them with maybe a little sugar on top. Right? It's very hard for us to stop and think that whatever insult someone has for us, there's likely some truth in it. Unlike Jesus, unlike Jesus, who endured insults without casting insults, but every accusation ever made against him, every name he was called was completely false. Completely false, and yet he kept his mouth shut. Don't forget that the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians who are undergoing persecution for their faith. They're being labeled atheists and cannibals. They're, they're having their property seized. They're facing conflict because of their faith. And in that context, the apostle is reminding them to not return evil for evil, to not return insult for insult. And so then to drive home this point, he quotes from Psalm 34 which says the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now notice that the reason this psalm gives for not returning insult for insult. For pursuing good instead of evil is because the Lord's eyes are toward those who behave in such a way. The Lord's eyes are toward those who, 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 believe, who, who do good. The Lord watches over those who live their faith, who in the face of insult can turn the other cheek, so to speak. The Lord watches over them. He hears their prayers, which is exactly why the Apostle Peter, Paul says... Um, Sorry, Peter, you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. The path to that blessing, right, is to have a soul that is controlled in the face of evil and insults. That, dear brothers and sisters, is part of what it means to have the mind of Christ. Do not forget that as he was crucified, as he was crucified... He prayed for those who were crucifying him, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do do not know what they are doing. And think of Deacon Stephen. Think of Deacon Stephen, who, as he's having the life crushed out of him by by stoning, prays, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Think of that. Don't hold this sin against them. The Christian, the one who knows and follows Jesus Christ, should be able by the power of the Spirit of God working in them not to return evil for evil and insult for insult. And those Christians that long for the blessings of God, not those Christians who treat God as if he were a thing rather than a person, those Christians that have a relationship with God, right, should find that... A means to pleasing him and growing in him is this ability to relent in the face of evils against us. Our unwillingness to resist returning evil for evil is why churches blow apart and relationships break and businesses fail and wars begin. Right? It could be the very reason you find yourself in a mess today. It could be the reason why your marriage is miserable. You keep a record of wrongs, you take an ins, every insult as an opportunity to insult. Right? Peter says, no. No, it's not Christ-like. But those who are able to halt the cycle, those who are able to be silent when, when insulted, when hurt, are those that have in mind the blessings of God. They are those who live for the life to come and not for this life. So often we think that our comfort in this life or the increase of our little empire is so important that we cling to it with a tenacity that does not allow us to overlook or to cover or to look past or forgive wrongs done to us. Right? Honestly, I think many men think that taking hits without returning punches is weakness. That somehow that marks masculinity. masculinity. Many proud men can't even accept loving rebuke without thinking of it as being evil toward them. Right? I know enough of that in my own heart to know it's true. Right? We're not talking about loving rebuke here. I'm not counseling you about loving rebuke. I'm counseling you about evil and insults. The problem is as so many of us think loving rebuke is always an insult and always evil. It's not true. There's a difference. When your elders come to you in, loving, um, in a loving way but say hard words, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about true evil, real insults, people who hate you, people who are not committed to your good coming after you. Right? But in the end, will, you, will we live to please God or will we live to give into our emotions? Which are we going to do? Will we live to please our wicked hearts that want revenge? Or will we have weaned souls? Weaned souls that keep God's watchful eye always on our minds. The Apostle Peter asks in verse 13, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you just do good? Well, we think it seems like everybody will harm me if I don't stick up for myself. Everybody's going to harm me. Isn't that how it seems? If we don't get the last word in, someone else will get the last word in and how could I live with that? How could I live with those words dangling out there without some kind of terse response? The point of the apostle though is to teach us that God is watching And when we act like His Son in the face of insults, we receive blessing, and that blessing is God's protection. We don't need our words to protect us. We need God to protect us. And so if God is for us, who can be against us, right? Right? What most people don't seem to think about, and we and you and I don't think about nearly often enough, Is that God is against those who are proud? God is against those who are proud. God is against the one who insults when insulted. God is against the one who does evil after receiving evil. Do we care if God is against us? Do we care if the curses listed on Mount Gerizim come against us for a lack of obedience? Do we care? Is the momentary sweetness of getting in a barb against our adversaries, those who have sinned against us, enough for you to risk having God Almighty against you? How often all of us have made the wrong assessment and chosen the relief of revenge to the risk of our souls. That's what we've done. I'll close here with John Calvin, who reminds us to always be mindful of God in all situations. Here's what he says about this passage He says, It ought to be a consolation to us. It should be a prize to us, sufficient to mitigate all evils that we are looked upon by the Lord, so that He will bring us help in due time. The meaning then is that the prosperity which He has mentioned depends on the protection of God. For were not the Lord to care for his people, they would be like sheep exposed to wolves. And that we, for little reason, raise a clamor, that we suddenly kindle unto wrath, that we burn with the passion of revenge. All this doubtless happens because we don't consider that God cares for us and because we do not acquiesce in his aid. Thus in vain we shall be taught patience, except our minds are first imbued with this truth, that God exercises such care over us that he will in due time succor us. When, on the contrary, we are fully persuaded that God defends the cause of the righteous, we shall first attend simply to innocence, and then when molested and hated by the ungodly, we will simply flee to the protection of God. God watches. God knows. God knows every insult and every evil that's ever been done to you. And it is His prerogative to take action on your behalf rather than for you to take your puny little action um, on your own behalf. Be mindful of God always. Remember that He watches over you. Nothing that comes to pass is without His knowledge. You may take blow after blow, and God takes note of it and will come to your aid in due time, right? In his time, he will come to your aid.